One thing that has always been a, a bit of a barrier for, for faith, for some people to believe in, in the God of the Bible are all the times when, when evil seems to win. Right, for, for someone who was in, in France in 1940 and suddenly Adolf Hitler is, has taken control of the government and the nation. When, when we're watching evil men fly hijacked planes into buildings and, and when there's people who have loved ones in those buildings... Or, or when we're seeing the latest group of teachers escort the latest group of kids out of a school building after a shooting. If it's your mom, daughter, wife in that maternity ward that Putin's goons blow up, what are we supposed to do with that and a system of faith that tells us we have a God who's in control and loves us? What do we do with those times when evil triumphs? Well, in the book of 1 Samuel, among other storylines, we've been following uh, King Saul as he, and his descent. Um, for my money, this is Saul's low point, what we're going to read today. He bottoms out. Saul uh, has been uh, declining and uh, becoming more and more just depraved. And this morning, as he sort of bottoms out, we're going to see something else if we pay attention. We're going to see the playbook. We're going to see the blueprint. Have you ever wondered how someone can stay in control? How some dictator, some strong man can stay in control of, of a country, of some cult, of some anything when... The people around them have to have already come to the conclusion that this guy is driving us over a cliff. We just had this conversation recently. Like, when it gets to the point where everyone around Vladimir Putin has to know, like, this train is headed for the gorge and the bridge is out. How come nobody can stop the train? You ever wonder about that? You're going to see the playbook today. Because King Saul has gotten to that point. In their better moments, in their more courageous moments, the, the, the decent men around Saul, or at least non-crazy men around Saul, have to be kind of giving each other the side eye, like, are you catching this? But no one can stop the train, and very few can even get off. This is a very, the more things change, the more they stay the same sort of passage. If nothing else, there's comfort in this passage in a very wicked story. 
there's comfort that at least there's, there's nothing new under the sun. At least whatever we might see happening today maybe isn't new. It's just different. Because today's passage, if you know anything about history at all, today's passage is going to look sadly familiar. But before we read any of it, let's not forget what got Israel where it's at today. Israel has a king that's as wicked as Saul because a few chapters back, Israel begged God, actually demanded of God, you will give us a king like all the rest of the nation's kings. Well, they've got one. So whatever happens today, remember, God only gave to Israel what it asked for. Let's read our passage today. First, 1 Samuel chapter 22, verses 6 through 23. Then Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered. Now Saul was sitting in Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with a spear in his hand, and all of his servants were standing around him. Saul said to his servants who stood around him, Hear now, O Benjamites! Will the son of Jesse also give to all of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? For all of you have conspired against me, so that there is no one who discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. And there's none of you who's sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in ambush as it is this day. Then Doeg, the Edomite, who was standing by the servants of Saul, said, I saw the son of Jesse coming uh, to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave David provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. And the king sent someone to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all of his father's household and all the priests who were in Nob. And all of them came to the king. Saul said, listen now, son of Ahitub, and he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to Ahimelech, Why have you and the son of Jesse conspired against me? And that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he would rise up against me by lying in ambush as it is this day. Then Ahimelech answered the king and said, Who among all your servants is as faithful as David? even the king's son-in-law, who's captain over your guard and is honored in your house. Did I just begin to inquire of God for him today? Far be it from me. Do not let the king impute anything to his servant or to any of the household of my father, for your servant knows nothing at all of this whole affair. Verse 16. But the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's household. And the king said to the guards who were attending him, turn around and put the priests of Yahweh to death because their hand also is with David and because they knew that he was fleeing and did not reveal it to me. But the servants of the king were not willing to put forth their hands to attack the priests of the Lord. Verse 18. Then the king said to Doeg, turn around and attack the priests. 
And Doeg the Edomite turned around and attacked the priests, and he killed that day 85 men who wore the linen ephod. And he struck Nob, the city of the, of the priests, with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and infants, also oxen, donkeys, and sheep. He struck with the edge of the sword, all but one son of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, a son named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Enamite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have brought about the death of every person in your father's household. Stay with me, do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life, and you are safe with me. It's our rather dark story starts in verses 6 through 10 where we see Saul is holding court in an outdoor venue which would have been very normal for that part of the world in, in, in that climate. But what we see here is a glimpse of sort of Saul's mental meltdown. He's become the epitome of paranoia and he starts to again go by the playbook of Strong men, dictators who have to rule by, by fear. The first thing we see is, is paranoia, which is very common. Saul goes on a tirade here against everyone who is around him. He's figured out, he's heard where David is at, that David's still alive. He's furious. And we learn that Saul has become convinced that there is this, this vast conspiracy that's set against him personally. Now, like a lot of paranoia, there's, there are bits of truth that seems to make the whole lot believable. He says he knows that his son Jonathan is loyal to David. He knows that. They've had the conversation. We saw it a couple weeks ago. He is sure there are other men in his administration that know that too. That's, that's a fact. But then he makes this mental leap. All that means that there are forces within my own administration who are conspiring against me to help David kill me. David is lying in wait and ambush behind every tree, around every corner, and I know there are people here who are helping him, and I'm going to find out who. That's false. I mean, it's just false. We're going to, over the next few weeks, we'll see. David doesn't even want to kill Saul. How can there be a conspiracy of people who want to kill Saul to help David kill Saul when not even David wants to kill Saul. Even when he has a chance, he won't do it. This sort of paranoia is extremely common in, in, in strong man dictators. Right? It was, it was evident in, in Hitler and Idi Amin and Saddam Hussein and the list goes on and on and on. And, and it's in Saul too. Because... When they sort of become the state and everything comes about them, they're always either the hero or the victim of every story. You notice that with Saul? If things are going well, why would things be going well? Because Saul is so wise and so awesome and so, right? 
But if anything starts to go poorly, why? Because there's forces around disloyal people who have it in for me. So, everything in Saul's government becomes a test of loyalty. And loyalty to Saul means accepting Saul's version of reality that gets set by his paranoia. Right? No one can put his arm around King Saul and say, hey, listen, King Saul, David's not trying to kill you because if someone did that, what would happen to that person? You're part of the enemy. So a culture gets created where the only safety comes from full loyalty and full loyalty means accepting and parroting the, the warped version of reality that dear leader espouses. Verse 7, Saul appeals to their tribal loyalty. Now Saul has been made by God the king of what? Not a trick question. The king of Israel. How many tribes are in Israel? Twelve. One tribe is Benjamin. Notice what Saul does here. Listen up, Benjamites. I am your leader. Will you have it as good if that son of Jesse, he'll never call him David. He likes to insulate, you know, remove a little bit of his humanity. That, that son of David, will you guys have it as good if he becomes king as you have it with me, your fellow, right? So you build again. The loyalty has to stay here with, with me. What's good for me is good for you. If you want things to be good for you, you have to watch out for dear leader. You won't have these kind of jobs like I gave you if that guy becomes king. Dictators always do that. Anyone who's mean to me is actually mean to you. So you better be loyal to me or watch out. And no dissent is ever tolerated. This loyalty is aided and encouraged by fear. If you are against me, if you criticize me, even if that criticism is you just don't accept my version of paranoia, I will ruin you or I will kill you. That's, that's how a culture gets created where people feel like, you know what? We just have to go along with this guy. It won't be, maybe it won't be that bad. And then in verse 9, we see another very common thing among dictatorial style strongmen rulers. They tend to attract bad actors. The, the more decent men get silenced and the crackpots start to rise to the surface and see opportunity. In verse 9, it's a man named Doeg the Edomite. If you're looking for boy baby names, might I suggest Doeg Edomite and insert your last name there. It's got a nice ring to it. He's one of the worst guys in the Bible, though, so maybe not. Maybe not. Um, 
Doeg, we met briefly last week. He was at the worship center in Nob, and, and uh, he saw Ahimelech help David. Doeg is not a man of integrity, but he is a man who can recognize an opportunity when one presents itself. Doeg steps forward to ingratiate himself to Saul, and he knows how to do it. Give Saul a target for his hatred and his paranoia. If, target, if, if Saul thinks that there is this conspiracy out to help David kill him, give him an example. Give him some, something that seems like evidence that will feed it. it. Who cares if it's true? He'll like me. So the bad actors begin to step forward. In this case, Doeg. He also knows, don't call him David. The king doesn't like that. Use the nicknames. Uh, oh, the son of Jesse, I saw him get food from Ahimelech. I saw him get a sword. Ahimelech's praying for David. He knows how to play the game for personal gain. And isn't it interesting? At the beginning of this tirade, when Saul went all, it's us against them. And if we don't succeed, everything falls apart. Who was the us in verse 7? Benjamites. But that's not really the test of loyalty. Because Doeg is an Edomite, a member of an ancient enemy nation. The real test is, who will help me? Verse 11. We see Saul quickly organize something else that's very common in uh, organizations or countries run strongman style dictators. It's a show trial. Uh, a show trial is exactly what it sounds like. This is a picture from an old Soviet one back in the day. A show trial is something that looks like a trial, but really it's just for show. Right, We're, we're going to organize a trial so it looks like justice was served, but really, the authorities already knew the verdict before the trial ever started. That's what, that's what Saul does. Saul has listened to Doeg the Edomite, and he has already decided Ahimelech, the high priest of Israel, is guilty. But in verse 11, he sends someone to bring Ahimelech and his entire family and all of the priests who are at that religious center in Nob. And now here's a question. Why would they come to this trial? Why go along with this? Because of this, this is what it looks like. Here's the culture. If they decide, no, I'm not participating, what is that an admission of in that culture? That's guilt. We know what will happen to us if we refuse, so we go and hope for the best. In verse 13, Saul accuses Ahimelech of conspiring with the man whose name shall not be mentioned, the son of Jesse. Notice, he doesn't ask him if he has conspired against me. He just says, why'd you do it? We all know you did it. Ahimelech starts to defend himself in several ways. First, he says, uh, 
O king, I can't be helping David kill you because David wouldn't ever kill you. That's great testimony because it's, you know, the truth. But does the truth help in a culture like this? No. All Saul hears is, you're not saying what I have said is the truth, so you got to go. You're out. He continues, Ahimelech does. Ahimelech says, why wouldn't I help him? He showed up. You let him into your family with your blessing. You let him into the upper echelons of, of your administration. And then he says, did I just start praying for David today? No. I pray for all you guys. Right? I've been inquiring of the Lord on David's behalf since shortly after he killed the giant. But in verse 16, then he just says, and if there's any treachery going on here, king, I don't, I don't know anything about it. But in verse 16, Saul declares Ahimelech and everyone with him to be guilty and part of this vast conspiracy. And he quickly sentences all of them to death. Now, why? Ahimelech is the only one that did anything for David. So why kill everyone? Because when you rule with fear, when you rule with complete allegiance is the only thing, you constantly have to send the message, I will ruin you or I will kill you and maybe even those around you or who associate with you if you don't accept the full version of what I'm sending out. That's what helps create that culture where no one can stop the train. The only safety comes with complete loyalty. It also helps anyone... You have to distance yourself from anyone who maybe be the slightest bit critical of the leader. Then the tragic test of loyalty. Everything is a test of loyalty. The tragic test of loyalty comes in verses 17 through 19, where after passing sentence on Ahimelech and his entire family and all of the priests, then Saul turns to his guards and orders them to kill all of those assembled priests. Now at very first, it seems like we might have us a glimmer of hope because at first... When Saul says, turn and kill all those priests, uh, the king's servants refused to, to kill those priests. Hey, that sounds good. But all they've done is found a way to not do one thing in a way that doesn't make it seem like they're loyal to David and against Saul. They, they just object on religious grounds. This is not the beginning of any kind of resistance. How do I know? Because their scruples stop, you know, watching someone else do to those priests what they refused is not, you know, obviously is no big deal. They say, I won't kill those priests, but they say nothing when Doeg the Edomite starts hacking away. They just, they know we have to stand by and watch this or the sword will come for us next. Next. 
Doeg, Doeg kills 85 priests who wore the linen ephod. It just means 85 fully commissioned priests of the Lord. It's a horrific scene. But Doeg doesn't stop there. I don't know if this is with Saul's directions. At the very least, it's with Saul's blessing and not with any kind of objection. Doeg, I don't know if the, the he, Doeg is the head shepherd for Saul. So I don't know if the under shepherds all arm themselves and go with him or what. I don't know what help he has, but he goes back to the hometown nob of all those priests and they kill everyone and everything men, women, children, animals, all of it. And there's something in here that's even sicker than it sounds. Has there been a story in this book where someone was ordered to kill everyone and everything in a... Do you remember who that was? What was that? God ordered King Saul. He had put the Amalekites under the ban. It was time for God said, I'm going to pour out my judgment on the Amalekites. And he tasked Saul with doing that. And Saul refused. Now, if you want to know why God would order such an awful thing, I would just refer you back to the first sermon on chapter 15 where we discussed that. But Saul refused to, carry, to fully carry out that order when carrying it out was required by full loyalty to God. But if someone's willing to do that to a bunch of God's priests to prove their loyalty to Saul, Saul's just fine with it. There is one tiny glimmer of hope um, at the end of this really sick and disturbing story. In the last four verses, there's one priest, Ahimelech's son. Um, he survives, he escapes, he flees, he makes it to David. Uh, Abiathar is his name. We'll see him moving forward. He tells David what has happened. David is racked with guilt. David's like, ah, when I saw Doeg the Edomite in the sanctuary that day, I just knew he was going to, I just knew this was going to go bad. And so David has guilt. David's not, David hasn't done anything wrong here. Saul is the one who's done something wrong. But we'll see him. We'll see him later. Well, David welcomes Abiathar, the lone survivor. We'll see why that's important next week. And isn't that an awful story? Just what a horrendous story. What's the what's it doing in here? What are what are we three thousand years later supposed to learn from a story like that? Besides. Like I mentioned at the beginning, if nothing else, this stuff has been going on for centuries and centuries and centuries. I mean, isn't that the playbook? Doesn't that get repeated over and over and over and over? You can put this playbook, you can go to uh, some cult that winds up becoming a mass suicide thing, Right? Don't we have the same question? How, how come nobody could stop that train? Go back and put this stuff in there. 
You can go back, uh, Pol Pot, if you know who that is. Uh, Joseph Stalin. It's just over and over and over. You'll see it. The paranoia, the, the, uh, the tests of loyalty and the loyalty required. You have to see my, what I'm spouting out as absolute truth, as the absolute truth. And if you don't, then I will make it, I'll ruin you. I'll murder you. You'll wake up in Siberia somewhere over and over and over. If nothing else, there's nothing new under the sun. But I think there's a couple of other things we can learn from this passage. First, about when evil wins. First, when the powers of evil oppose the plans of God, they still only manage to fulfill the word of God. It's really hard to see that when it's happening. But when the powers of evil oppose the plans of God, they still only manage to fulfill the word of God or the purposes of God or the edicts of God. Here's how this story shows us that. Excuse me. If you were here at the beginning of this book, we started uh, 1 Samuel when I was 12 years old. Okay, we're, okay, it's been a while. Anybody remember who the high priest was when this book started? It's the guy that Hannah showed up to. It's not Samuel's, before Samuel. Eli. Eli was the high priest. He had two sons named Hophni and Phinehas. Good guys or bad guys? Bad guys. They're awful, wicked guys. And they earned some special judgment from God earlier in this book. The main judgment was not that Hophni and Phinehas would die on the same day, though that happened. That was just the sign to Eli that God was serious. The main judgment was the priesthood's going to be ripped away from this family and your family, because in that day, your clan, your family line was like everything. And God said, someday your family line is going away, Eli. Do you know what we just saw happen in today's passage? Eli's family line going away. The book of 1 Kings makes clear that was, those were still the descendants of Eli. So that what happens in this passage, Saul and Doeg, they are responsible for their evil behavior. They will answer to God for what they've done. But at the same time, they don't do anything that God hasn't planned in advance is going to happen. How that all works out, I have no idea, but it always does. So one bit of comfort from a story like this is no matter how evil things get, this world has not spun completely out of God's control. God's not asleep. He's not on vacation. He hasn't stopped caring. And even when we cannot possibly fathom why God would allow what he's allowing, doesn't mean God doesn't have a reason for allowing what he's allowing. And second, when we look around more than anything else, when we look around and it seems like evil is winning, more than anything else, Wickedness in power should increase our longing for the good king. And I want to really highlight, underline this part. More than anything else, 
when it seems like evil triumphs. More than anything else, what should happen in our hearts, more than our desire for vengeance, more than our desire for our team to overrule and win, more than anything else, we should have a longing for the good king. And boy, this passage teaches that. Here's how. From a bird's eye view where we're at in this book is God gave Israel the king it wanted in Saul, but now he stands rejected. God has rejected Saul. But in his sovereignty, God has allowed this rejected evil king to stay in power. Meanwhile, God's already got this other guy who's going to be the good king. He's got David. He's already anointed David. He's going to be the king. Do you think there were people who knew that? David, David's family, the people around David that are hiding with him that we saw last week. Do you think they ever wondered, God, what's taking so long? Why let the rejected wicked king win when you've got a good king ready to go? Folks, that's where we are right now today. Because we have a good king who is going to come and rule and reign. But boy, it seems like he's taken a long time. God's one and only son, David's great, 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 great grandson. He's the real good king. He's been anointed. He's had something of a coronation and an enthronement ceremony. and rule and reign until people go, man, maybe if it's taken this long, he's not even coming. Or at the very least, what's taking so long? Folks, the good king is coming. Like the good king is coming. And more than anything else, that's the administration we're waiting on. That's the inauguration day we want. Now, what we all want to know is, yeah, but when? We're not the first ones to ask that question. That question started getting asked immediately after Jesus died. Jesus, uh, during his lifetime, his disciples assumed, oh, wait, he's going to be the king. This is going to be awesome. He's going to take us with him. Then he got killed. As a general rule, dead guys don't make great kings. I don't know if you're aware, but it's kind of a rule. But he rose again, he came back to life, and after they got over the shock and awe, and they finally got their heads wrapped around, this really is Jesus, he's alive again. One of the first questions they asked him was what? When? Lord, this is the risen Jesus, the beginning of the book of Acts. Lord, is this the time when you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he told them, if you pay real close attention and you put all the clues together, I'll let you know exactly when I'm coming back. Is that what he said? No. He said, you are not permitted to know. You are not permitted to know the times and the periods that the Father has set in his own authority. Here's what we know. The good king's coming. Bank on it. We don't know when. 
We know that you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Why does the Holy Spirit give us power? So that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and the farthest parts of the earth. That's our job. Then I added this part just because I think it's hilarious. After he had said this, while they were watching, he was lifted up and a cloud hit him from their sight and they were still standing there staring into the sky and some men uh, in white clothing, angels, stood near them and said, hey, why are you standing there looking up into the sky? The same Jesus who's taken up from you into heaven is going to come back the same way. But your job is not to be standing there staring into heaven uh, trying to figure out if today is the day. Today is the day for me to be his witness. Today is the day to help someone else know who he is. The good king is coming. He is going to reign. He won't be elected. It's going to be more of a hostile takeover. His best friend John wrote that, that God allowed him to see a glimpse of the good king's return. He said, behold, I saw a rider on a white horse and his name was Faithful and True. If you're waiting for us to be able to elect someone who's faithful and true, his name is Faithful and True. And with justice he judges and goes to war. His eyes are like a fiery flame and there are many crowns on his head. He has a name written that no one knows except himself. You know what that name is? I don't know. No one knows it except him. I just told you that. He's dressed in white clothing, dipped in blood. He's called the Word of God. That's John's nickname for Jesus. The armies that are in heaven, dressed in white, clean, fine linen, were following him on white horses. Guess who that is? That's us. From his mouth extends a sharp sword so that with it he can strike the nations. Here's what I think that means. I don't think Jesus has a literal sword coming out of his mouth. I think it means he doesn't need tanks and helicopters and planes and nuclear weapons. He just needs his words. He will rule the nations with an iron rod. He will stomp the winepress of the furious wrath of God, the Almighty. He even has a tattoo. Check this out. He has a name written on his clothing and on his thigh. King of kings and Lord of lords. John goes on to tell how with a word he will kill all the evil ones in the world. It'll be a feast for the vultures. And then at the end of this book, here's what God the Father tells John. And the one seated on the throne, that's God, said, Behold, look, check this out. I am making all things new. Don't miss the tense of that. In none of our translations will you find God say, I will make all things new. It's not what he said. He says, I am making all things new. You know what that means? When evil triumphs today, 
That's part of God pushing things forward. He is making all things new. Then God said this. Then he said to me, John says, write that stuff down because these words are reliable and true. Write it down. Write what down? The good king is coming. We can be with him. And at the end, people will, there will only be two kinds of people, those who are with him and those who are against him. However way, other ways we divide up ourselves, our friends, our social groups, our political parties, or any of that, there are two kinds of people on that day, those who are with him and those who are not. And that is why it's so important to know, no matter what evil is happening in this, com- in this country, in this world, the good king is coming. And our job is to be his witnesses. Witnesses of what? That he was the Holy One. That he was killed on a cross under the the wrath of God that I deserve. And that he was powerful enough to come back to life and promise resurrection to all who would believe in him. His first, we call it witnessing, Those guys were like legit, actual witnesses, eyewitnesses. We don't get to be eyewitnesses, but we get to witness. We get to witness that the good king is coming. He's better than and more powerful than any force of evil. And on the day when he returns, we just want to make sure we are with him and not against him. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, I thank you for even in the darkest of passages, there is hope um, that the good king is coming. And though, uh, like Peter said, it may seem to, to us like you're being slow, you're not slow. The passage of time does not affect the sureness of your promises. God, um, we can be confident you are coming We can know it could be today and we pray that it would be. We cannot know when. But we can know it will be way better to be with you than against you. So help us to be your witnesses in this part of the world. That you may glorify yourself in bringing many to know Jesus the Christ. Thank you that your words are faithful and true. That's why you ordered them to be written down. Because we can depend on them even when evil triumphs. We love you, Lord. Thank you that that part is temporary and you are eternal. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Just stand up and we will finish.